0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 185, and it's the third in a multiple-part episode set related to Richard Case Nagel. I hope everybody had a nice Labor Day weekend. Mine was relaxing, and the weather was beautiful where I was at. I hope yours was, too. I'm finally getting over a nasty cold, finally feeling better, but behind on things as a result of all the downtime in the last couple of weeks. So it's time to catch up. The to do list is growing, and that includes a few more episodes. But wait, we've already produced almost two and a half hours of programming related to Richard Case Nagel, and you know, that's probably more than I had originally intended in total. But the subject of Richard Case Nagel is an elusive one. At the end of the two and a half hours, the first two episodes, I really found myself a bit frustrated because. You see, I'm a little discouraged in some ways because the real meat of it, or what should have been the real meat of it, the time that Nagel spent spent with Oswald, well, there just isn't a good accounting of what actually went on, and it's sort of like watching a movie and hoping to get to the climax, and then it never comes. Some people would describe it more in food terms and say it's sort of like eating popcorn. You know, a, a good popcorn with the right amount of salt and butter or other topping, your favorite topping on it. You know, it it keeps you entertained in a sense, but it doesn't fill you up. And that is exactly how I feel about this entire set of episodes related to Richard Case Nagel. Nevertheless, I do think the first two episodes were helpful in understanding perhaps if nothing more, the struggles that he underwent mentally and emotionally after the plane crash in 1954. He truly was an incredible war hero for this country, and it was an absolute tragedy what happened to him after the plane crash. I will have to say a little more about this tragic plane crash incident as a prelude to today's discussion. It is so front and center as the driver in Nagel's later behavior. Regardless, I did commit to exploring more of the details, and we'll do that next in a series of short bonus episodes. So let's listen today to this first bonus episode, which covers really several topics. First, I'm going to say a little bit more about this tragic plane crash incident. Then we'll talk about the letter that Nagel dispatched to J. Edgar Hoover in September 1963 before he went and got arrested at the bank. As you recall, Nagel claims to have dispatched a letter to J. Edgar Hoover just prior to being involved in the bank incident. A letter that supposedly exposed Lee Harvey Oswald and the plot and contained enough information that the FBI should have taken action against Oswald to foil the plot. But they did not. And as we all know now from the first two episodes, that letter was never acknowledged at the FBI as ever being received. I think the primary dilemma that we all have related to this letter is, well, whether it even existed. And I am 100% sure that if it did exist, it was destroyed. Isn't that a fair bet? So the real question is, and it's worth contemplating, did it ever exist And did it really go to J. Edgar Hoover with the contents that Nagel said it did? There are two pieces of evidence cited by Nagel that he presented to us for some level of comfort. The first is a registered mail receipt related to the letter. And the second is an affidavit that he made and swore to regarding the letter itself. And that brings us to the last item that we'll cover in today's bonus episode. And it relates to the actual bank episode itself and his immediate incarceration in the county jail in the aftermath. The reason why I want to cover this is that the truth about what happened that day at the bank is a bit twisted here. You see, there is urban legend that abounds and it needs to be set straight. The urban legend and popular story being that Nagel simply walked into the bank, took two shots, and then walked out and sat on the curb and allowed himself to be captured by the authorities. It didn't actually happen exactly like that, and perhaps the reason we should spend a few minutes on how it actually did happen will help you decide whether or not he was hell-bent on using the bank incident to get caught and, as a result, conveniently place himself into the hands of the federal authorities or not. To help with this today, we are going to go back and listen to sworn testimony of the original witnesses, including the report of the arresting officer. As you know from previous episodes, I always like to read what was said and sworn to almost immediately after the crime, and that is what you'll hear today, and not what has been written, rewritten, massaged, and then picked up again in various books and publications with an endless and subtle morphing of the story, perhaps done because of laziness, or done to sell books, or perhaps to just make a stronger case around why Nagel did what he did, to make it perhaps seem abundantly clear that it was all about the JFK assassination and nothing else. And it may have been. I'm not saying it wasn't. I am saying that it didn't quite happen the way most books write about it. So stick around and we'll tell you that story in a minute. And when this bonus episode is over, come back for bonus episode 186, which is a storytell related to the legal odyssey that ensued with the bank case itself, told from the perspective of the principal defense attorney on the case. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 185 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It was around Thanksgiving time and Nagel wanted to get back to San Francisco to see his girlfriend. So he hopped a flight to San Francisco and when his time was up there, he took a military flight back to the Baltimore area on November 28th, 1954. And on his way back on that flight on a B-25 bomber, he was the only Army man in the company of five Air Force personnel, all of them but Nagel would soon die. Toward the end of the flight, which was originally scheduled to touch down at Andrews Air Force Base near Washington D.C., the flight was diverted in the middle of a pelting rain and redirected toward Friendship Airport in Baltimore. They got within 14 miles of Friendship Airport before radio contact was lost, and at about 10:30 p.m. that night, The B-25 struck the top of a hill, slicing through some trees and then torn to shreds as it came to a stop. The plane went down in very difficult terrain and nothing occurred until the plane became overdue. But Army, Air Force, Marine and civilian aircraft, as well as some helicopters, joined in the search for the missing plane. It wasn't until 8 o'clock the following morning when a Coast Guard plane obtained a read on the wreckage for the first time and it was only two miles away from the airport located in a dense and somewhat swampy stretch of woods. It was a complicated process to get to the plane and examine the wreckage so much so that the state police had to use pack horses to get there making their way up a steep hillside and through a deep stream and then through very thick underbrush. Quickly, they came across the five dead servicemen with their bodies still intact. The only person still living was Richard Case Nagel. He had been up there now almost nearly 12 hours in very difficult conditions. That, at times, included freezing rain. Search teams quickly gave Nagel a tracheotomy in hopes of saving him. The area was so dense, a helicopter involved in the search and rescue was unable to land anywhere near the wreckage in order to pick him up, and as a result, they had to hand-carry Nagel out of the wreckage area into a nearby open field a distance away. He would then be brought to Balling Air Force Base Hospital in Washington, suffering from a jaw that was severely fractured on both sides, along with a skull that was fractured in a severe concussion. He would have brain damage from this event, and he would be permanently scarred and disfigured around his head. But Nagel was a tough guy, and even as quickly as the next day, he had begun to stabilize. He would get shipped off to Walter Reed Army Hospital and spend five months recuperating. After his release in 1955, he was given a thorough psychiatric examination that, in sum, cleared him of any possible personality changes related to his injuries. But there was more to that story, and you heard it already, and you'll hear more of it about the good Dr. Weinstein. The Army quickly approved him for assignment and duty within the CIC, and he would soon report back to duty at the CIC's Intelligence Training Center. Now, let's fast forward some nine years later, after a brilliant soldiering career in Korea, after a run in the Counterintelligence Corps, time spent in the Far East, under the deepest of the Army intelligence spy operations, the FOI, operations which seemingly involved him in a black ops mission, to murder a U.S. Marine sergeant who had defected in place, a man who had become a suspected communist spy there, in Japan. This and so much else had weighed on Nagel and he had become disillusioned and then turned to becoming perhaps a traitor himself to his own beloved country, as involvement with the enemy forces himself in a possible counter-espionage engagement with the Russians would soon ensue. And then he would be led into conflict with his superiors and ultimately come to be suspected by his superiors as having passed sensitive information into the wrong hands. And then all of that finally leading to him being relieved of all sensitive duties inside the military, including all military intelligence activities, but somehow navigating to an honorable discharge out of the army and then into... Sadly enough, an unsuccessful transition into civilian life as an investigator for the California Alcohol Beverage Control, or ABC, where he was shot once during that time frame, and which may or may not have been related to some of the things he was doing as an ABC investigator. He would lose his job and his wife and his family, and he would check into mental hospitals, and he would do so on multiple occasions. And all at the same time continued to dabble with the CIA and the FBI as a casual informant. His M.O. already established as someone who played on both sides of the spy game. What a nine-year run of drama and tragedy. And all of that only to bring himself to the remarkable story of 1962, when he supposedly was recruited by our government to go to Mexico City and engage in a disinformation program to help our country deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. Man, he just happens to then get mixed up with the other side, of course, but now is a counterintelligence agent, and he gets his first counterintelligence assignment to follow Lee Harvey Oswald, and also in an unrelated assignment, follow a developing assassination plot related to the President of the United States, a plot that the Russians have heard about. Yes, I'm not kidding. These instructions came from Russia on these two unrelated assignments. And to top it off, he is acting as a double agent as he conducts them. Oh, and uh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Throw in before that a little look-see at Marina Oswald to determine if the rumors are true that she really wants to divorce her loco American Marine husband and come back to Russia. Oh, yeah, and I also left out that Lee Harvey Oswald and Richard K. Nagel were already connected, having conducted at least one covert operation together related to Colonel Eroshkin in Japan, and even spent time together at the Queen Bee around that same time. <laughs> Boy, you can't write this stuff. And then there is this little thing, the little cherry on top of everything, this directive from Russia to kill Oswald. If you can't convince him that he is a patsy, kill him so that the plot to kill President Kennedy would be foiled. But then Nagel can't go through with it for God knows what reason. And so he walks into a bank and shoots it up. Well, not really. He just fired two... 45 caliber slugs into the wall at just a little above head height. Andy he did it in order to be captured? Oh my. Well, I am exhausted with that little lead in or lead up synopsis. I'm exhausted before we even get started on today's episode related to the bank and Hoover's letter. You know, Dick Russell would tell a story relayed to him about Nagel's action on the day of the assassination. Nagel was still sitting in an El Paso jail cell, but apparently he managed to pass a note to one of the jailers, a man named Jesus Mendoza, or otherwise known to Nagel as Chewy. Scribbled on the piece of the paper was a request for Nagel to speak with the Secret Service right away. Russell would locate Mr. Mendoza at his home in Texas years later and he had no recollection of the event. The note passing from Nagel that is. Although it was clear that Mr. Mendoza was aware of the sensitivity of Nagel's possible involvement and the involvement of the Secret Service and FBI in interviewing Nagel. Passing the buck to his superior he would tell Russell that arguably his boss would know more. But Captain Raymond O'Rourke refused an interview by Russell in 1975, and he died after that. Well, that smells like smoke, doesn't it? That possibly there was someone who could have verified something quite sensitive, but they never did. They refused to open their mouth. So, to be honest, we have no idea what they would say about it, or would have said about it. Sadly enough... Well, not long after the assassination, El Paso FBI agent Thomas B. White Jr. came and interviewed Nagel. It was a short interview with Nagel answering a few questions, including how he had met Lee Harvey Oswald. But Nagel wanted to speak with the Secret Service and not the FBI. He would answer some things and not answer others. And the meeting then ended abruptly. But Agent White was still interested, and he came back a few days later, and this time he was accompanied by two more agents, one FBI and one from the Secret Service, men assigned to the assassination investigation. By this time, Nagel was convinced that the FBI was involved in some way, and he refused to cooperate at all with the questioning on that day, given the presence of the FBI. Again, there is a story of Nagel writing an important letter to an important official. That night, in the jail, on the night of the assassination, as the story goes and as told by Nagel, he would sit down and pen a letter to the chief of the Secret Service Division of the U.S. Treasury Department in Washington, D.C. In it, he would advise the chief that there had been a conspiracy to murder President Kennedy and other government officials, and he would be willing to give information in regard thereto. According to Nagel, he never received a reply, and according to Richard Russell, well, Mr. Russell was never able to locate that letter that Nagel allegedly sent, searching in vain at the National Archives for it. Isn't that a recurring theme? It seems as though this letter is but one more example of a letter that was supposedly sent by Nagel, but that there is no original of it and no copy retained by Nagel. But sadly, this is the kind of evidence, if it ever existed, that is so damning, so damning that there is no doubt correspondence like this, if it ever did exist, would have been deep-sixed by the Secret Service. So who do you believe here? The war hero with a series of clearly manifested emotional and behavioral health issues? Or the skeptic in you? I don't know, but after 185 episodes of JFK, The Enduring Secret, I would believe that it's plausible that the letter was produced and sent, and then lost or destroyed. You see, there were a few things over the years that Nagel claimed happened, things that were initially hard to find or verify, and which may have pointed to the idea that they weren't true or didn't exist. And that story sounds familiar today and similar to this one. But then they were found by Russell and others. So the skeptic that thinks everything, every little piece of evidence like this that Nagel talked about was a fabricated story, well, I think that's just false. That is just not the case. But again, this letter is nowhere to be found. There is no real evidence that it was sent. So... Who do you believe? But the Secret Service letter is a warm-up of sorts when you think about letters written and sent by Nagel. So let's roll the clock back a bit to a time before the assassination because the Big Kahuna letter is not to the Secret Service, which was the letter sent after the assassination, but rather the Big Kahuna letter is the letter sent to J. Edgar Hoover in early September before the assassination, saying that there was a conspiracy afoot to kill the president and that Lee Harvey Oswald was involved. Sent to the top of the heap to J. Edgar Hoover himself, actually sent at the same time that two other letters were purportedly sent to the CIA, with one going to Desmond Fitzgerald, who was then functioning in the White House as the head of the Cuba Project for Robert Kennedy. That one, too, is missing. But let's not get distracted. Let's get back to the big kahuna of letters, the letter to J. Edgar Hoover. And let's turn again to Dick Russell's The Man Who Knew Too Much and read directly a passage about it. On September twentieth, 1963, Nagel arrived in El Paso. Someone, he says, was waiting for him across the border in Juarez. But Nagel had come to a decision. He cruised the streets for a while. And then he parked his Ford Fairlane next to a no-parking sign in the alley between Oregon and El Paso streets. Then he walked into the downtown post office. There he mailed three letters. One was to Desmond Fitzgerald. Another was a nastier note to another unnamed CIA official at Langley headquarters. In an envelope, Nagel mailed five $100 bills, and he says an airplane ticket to Mexico City. At his trial the following June, when asked about the intended recipient of the money, Nagel said, I think that at this time, the Federal Bureau of Investigation knows as to whom I mailed it, but I am not going to state it. Later, Nagel would reveal that the $500 was the expense money for Oswald's Mexico trip. But in 1974, Bud Fensterwald would write to Nagel and ask him a question. He wanted to know whether Oswald might have gone by bus instead of plane to Mexico in an effort to make a few bucks. Nagel wrote back, I doubt it, mainly because I have cause to believe that he was never given or did not receive the $500. There may have been a witness when Nagel mailed his package in El Paso late that afternoon. awaiting trial on April 7th, 1964, Nagel wrote a letter to one of his El Paso attorneys asking that a $50 money order be telegraphed to Von L. Snipes, or otherwise known as Von Marlowe. If you do not have the money left, Nagel wrote, then I have the money available in my jail account. This request is in conjunction with my obtaining a deposition and witness to the fact that I mailed $500 from El Paso on the date of my arrest. Later, Marlowe was interviewed by Russell, and he would say he did not remember ever receiving any $50 money order from Nagel. And he said he had no idea why Nagel would have made such a request of him, or what witness Nagel could have been describing. Again, it's another arcane moment that we have to ask, was it true, or was it the rantings of a man seriously compromised from a behavioral health perspective. The letter to Desmond Fitzgerald was also not recovered. Remember, as I just said, Desmond Fitzgerald was serving at the time as Robert Kennedy's operative in the White House on the Cuba Project, and he was a CIA officer himself. That letter was never discovered, and the registered mail receipts for all of these letters that Nagel represents he mailed via registered mail and retained proof of mailing all those receipts for proof of mailing went missing after the police took all evidence from his car, later that afternoon, after his arrest on bank robbery charges. Were the proof of mailings there? Well, if they were, they were never found. And they were not included in any inventory of the items that were confiscated that day because the inventory contained in the police report on Just what papers were found in the car just happens to zoom right out and lose all of its detail the moment they begin describing the files and all the paperwork confiscated from Nagel's car. Now, this may or may not be somewhat odd, and especially in light of the intense detail that lays out all the other items confiscated from the car. You know, it was almost as if Officer Jim Bundren just plain got tired by the time they were finishing up the police report. And what was in those paper files, which probably didn't mean much to him, well, it was the last thing on the list. And it was probably just the last thing between him and going home and eating a sandwich. So they simply listed it generically as folders or something to that effect. Actually, you'll hear exactly how they described it in a minute when we hear an actor read Jim Bundren's own police report. Again, Bundren was the arresting officer, as we know. So now we have three missing letters, three missing receipts supporting proof of mailing. (laughs) You know, there were a myriad of items seized from his car when he was arrested in El Paso. And through a court hearing held on December 4th, 1963, Nagel's lawyers were able to persuade authorities to return the contents under the premise that they were important to preparing for his trial. But not everything was returned. According to Nagel, two things that weren't returned were the receipt for his registered letter sent to Hoover and at least one of his personal notebooks. So where does that leave us? We're down to the only evidentiary item that Nagel subsequently puts forth to substantiate the existence of the Hoover letter, and it's a sworn statement. So let's listen to it now in an actor's voice.
1: I... Richard C. Nagel being first sworn, depose and say. In September 1963, the exact date of which I am capable of verifying, I dispatched a letter via registered mail, addressed to Mr. John E. Hoover, Director Federal Bureau of Investigation, United States Department of Justice, Washington, 25, D.C. The envelope in which this letter was enclosed, bore the same address in addition to the return address Joseph Kramer, APDO, Postal 88-BIS, Mexico DF, Mexico, and was mailed within the United States. This letter was neatly typed written, and composed in the style and format used by operational personnel of the Central Intelligence Agency in writing their reports. That is, it was clear and concise with the names of persons and organizations typed in caps. In the aforesaid letter, I advised Mr. Hoover of a conspiracy, although I did not use the word conspiracy, involving Lee Harvey Oswald, to murder the chief executive of the United States President Kennedy. I indicated that the attempt would take place during the latter part of September 1963, probably on the 26th, the 27th, the 28th, or 29th presumably at Washington, D.C. I furnished a complete and accurate physical description of Mr. Oswald, listing his true name, two of his aliases, his residence address, and the conspiracy, either an overt act which constituted a violation of federal law, to warrant an immediate investigation, if not the arrest of Mr. Oswald. I revealed something about myself, which incriminated me on another matter. I stated by the time you receive this letter, I shall have departed the USA, for good. I signed the letter with the name Joseph Kramer, an alias of a known communist Soviet agent, then residing in Canada, and also an alias that I had used during my meetings with two FBI agents in January 1963, at Miami, Florida, who in turn used the name The Tacos. I am willing to take a polygraph examination relative to any and all statements made herein. Signed Richard C. Nagel. And sworn to on this 21st day of November 1975 before the notary public in the state of California, Albert S. Fujimoto.
0: Nagel claimed that he signed the letter to Hoover using a pseudonym, Joseph Kramer, with a K. It should be noted that Joseph Kramer was also noted by Nagel to be a pseudonym used by Mark Julius Gain. who was apparently a known communist who had perpetrated several military intelligence organizations in the Far East shortly after World War II. It was one of the many aliases used by Nagel, including variations on the spelling of Joseph Kramer with a K and a C, and he also used the pseudonym at times of Robert Nolan. There were others as well. All of this verified by a document declassified in 1974 by the CIA. And this particular one use, Joseph Kramer with a K, was actually explained by Nagel in a 1974 brief filed with the Court of Claims related to his disability claim. He claims he even gave a Mexico City address as the return address on the Hoover letter. By the way, the story of Gain is fascinating. But we won't wander into it today. However, Dick Russell covers it well in his book. See, that's the reason you have to go out and buy The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's fascinating on all sorts of fronts. I'm glad you're sticking around and listening to these bonus episodes because, as I told you, there would be a few little tidbits here and there. And did you know that Nagel not only wrote that original letter to Hoover before the assassination, but he actually also wrote a letter to Hoover from his jail cell after the assassination, and as his own trial was approaching, he did so on April 16, 1964. He penned the following letter to Hoover, and this time I'll just read it to you aloud, or at least the portion that is contained in "The Man Who Knew Too Much." So here goes. My responsibility concerning the then prospective action of Lee H. Oswald (in parentheses Albert heidel terminated with the dispatch of the registered letter from Joseph Kramer to the FBI in September 1963. Since the information disclosed in that letter was judged to be mendacious by the FBI, as is quite evident, then with whom the responsibility lies for what subsequently happened in Dallas is rather obvious. Certainly, FBI files in Washington, D.C., or Miami, Florida, or Mexico City, etc., reflect who Joe Kramer is, and such information received from a known communist who allegedly had been effective enough to penetrate several U.S. military intelligence agencies should not have been ignored. In this respect, the efficacy of the FBI is the responsibility of its director, regardless of the actions or judgment of his subordinates. You have to keep in mind the timing of this letter. It was early 1964, and so it was long before there was really any articulation of much going on in Mexico or the like. Although there were rumors. Nagel would tell Russell in one of the interviews that he had with him that he never stated where the Hoover letter was mailed from or that he had actually mailed it personally. He said that he had always maintained that he had dispatched a letter at the instance of Joe Kramer, whatever that means. He would go on to tell Russell that he felt certain that if the FBI got a letter signed by Joseph Kramer and ran a computer or file check, they would look into it. They would know that this is not a crank letter. That seems pretty spy-like to me. What do you guys think? Well folks, there you have it. And that little twist about being signed by Joseph Kramer and the ramifications of that Are a bit chilling. So, did it happen? Was it real or not? Clearly, if Nagel did send this original letter and it existed and we could verify it, it would do much to end the speculation about whether the core assassination story of Richard Case Nagel is real or not. Now, let's turn to the story of the bank incident. And we'll start by hearing the sworn testimony taken from Patsy Clydeen Gordon, the bank teller who had the unfortunate experience of having Mr. Nagel come to her window to get those traveler's checks. Here is her sworn statement taken that day, reproduced in an actor's voice.
2: My name is Patsy Clydeen Gordon, and at the present time, I live at 4116 Byers Street in El Paso, Texas. I have worked for the State National Bank for the past two years and four months. This date September 20, 1963, I went to work at the bank, as usual, and as best I can figure, it just had been about 4.30 p.m. when I was approached by a man who now I know to be Richard C. Nagel at my teller's window. As best I can recall, he is an Anglo male, dressed in what appeared to be a blue suit, with a white shirt. He came over to me and leaned over at the counter and asked, or rather said, I want $100 in traveler's checks. I was going to stop over to the check window, or rather drawer, to get the checks, when I remembered to ask him how he wanted the checks. I started to ask him, what when he said, lady, this is a real gun. About this time, I looked over to him, and saw what appeared to be a black or blue pistol. It was not very big. Now, at this time, I turned around and ran toward the back of the teller's cage. I was about to enter the hall right behind. When I heard two shots. Just about that time, one of my co workers, S. Coles, approached me, and we both ducked back, and we both ducked under a counter. Now, while at the station and viewing the lineup, the man that is in the number two place is Richard C. Nagel, who approached me at the bank, and he requested the traveler checks from me, and also pointed the gun at me.
0: Now that we have heard from Mrs. Gordon, let's hear the police report written by the arresting officer, Jim Bundren and read verbatim and reproduced in an actor's voice and now you get to hear the story of how nagel was actually apprehended and it wasn't outside the bank sitting on the sidewalk also pay careful attention to the details of the inventory of items taken from his car as detailed in the original real-time police report of the incident
3: officer jim bunderan was on special assignment at the state national bank guarding a Treasury Department display. The display is located in the west lobby of the bank. At approximately 4.20 p.m., I heard two shots from the east side lobby of the bank, and ran through the area behind the real estate collections department, to where the shots had come from. At the time I reached the east lobby of the bank, someone yelled that the subject had run out the west side door, and gone south on Oregon Street, I ran out the door of the bank, chasing the subject to the corner of Oregon and Overland and then west on overland as I reached the alley between Oregon and El Paso streets, which is alley, B, and then a 1957 yellow and white Ford came out of the alley and started into the moving traffic on overland. When the subject saw me, he looked first at me, and then at the pistol in my hand, and said alright, I give up. I asked the subject to get out of the car, which he did, and then if he had a gun. The subject stated that he did not have a gun. I searched him, and found a Colt service revolver, caliber 45 in his right front pants pocket. I then put the handcuffs on him, turned off the car, put the keys in my pocket, and took him back to the bank to the personnel office. I then called the police station, and asked for assistance. The subject, Richard Case Nagel, a white Anglo male, age 33, was booked in the city jail on the above mentioned charges by me, and the following items were tagged as evidence. The subject's car was brought into the basement of the police station, where it was to be processed by the ID section. Here is a list of the evidence we confiscated. One new service Colt revolver with a 2-inch barrel, serial number 240-976. Six rounds of 45 automatic ammo, in half clips, with the expended rounds included. One Minolta 16 camera, serial number 155-524. 1 Minolta Flash Attachment 1 Minolta Round Plastic Developer 1 Kodak Miradel Developer 1 Lens Brush 1 Minolta Film Magazine 1 Film Pack 2 Roll Super of Pack 1 Pair of Scissors 1 Sunbeam Iron Model S40 One 45 RPM Record Box, which contained all of the above named items and assorted folders, with personal papers and military service records and documents.
0: Well, there you have it. You didn't hear much in the actual police report related to what was confiscated in the way of documents. It was a very generic reference, as I noted earlier. But Nagel himself, in a typed memorandum that he wrote while he was still in jail in 1967, set forth a more expanded description of the contents of his personal property. That, as he puts it, was seized and confiscated by the FBI on September 20, 1963. In his rendition, it included two Mexican tourist cards, one of them for multiple entrants made out to the names of Joseph Kramer and Albert or Alexei Heidel. As a reminder, Alec J. Heidel was an alias known to have been used by Lee Harvey Oswald in many of his 1963 activities. Nagel also alleged that an Oswald tourist card had been in his own possession. Oh, and how about the Oswald Social Security card with the three attempts at replicating Oswald's signature? I think that story came later. After Nagel's death, Dick Russell would spend some time with his niece. She was the daughter of Nagel's sister, Eleanor. Eleanor knew much about Richard Case Nagel because... Richard Case Nagel confided in her often. Then Nagel's niece told Dick Russell, and she was adamant about it, that her mother had told her that the original Hoover letter did indeed exist. She would add that her mother never lied to her. So did Eleanor Nagel's sister actually see a copy of the letter at some point? As apparently there were strong indications that a copy existed of this letter. And the niece said so. As I recall, there was a period that Eleanor was in custody of some of Nagel's materials before her house too was broken into, and the materials were taken from there as well. (laughs) Folks, you can't write this stuff. On January 6, 1964, Nagel would sit down and pen a three-page memo that purported to explain his conduct in the bank. It was not long afterward that he was revisited by a couple of other FBI agents. Edward Murphy and Lawrence Gorman, where he was accused of having acted as an unregistered agent of a foreign government and of aiding and abetting in the commission of a capital offense, that is murder. Murphy asked him if there was anything that he wanted to get off his chest and implied that he might be in a similar situation as Jack Dunlop, another individual who had, and I quote, committed suicide the year before after being accused of being a Soviet spy. It was then that the FBI agent asked him directly whether he was ready to go to Springfield, which is a prison psychiatric facility, a medical center for federal prisoners located in Springfield, Illinois, a psychiatric facility with a particular set of programs in emphasis on behavior modification. Imagine that. Well, isn't that what all prisons are about? Behavior modification? I guess it's a pretty benign tuck-in, isn't it? Well, Nagel refused the offer, and the FBI agent assured him that he was going to prison. And it escalated from there, with Nagel accusing the FBI of covering up the assassination. Nagel asserted that he could have reported Oswald's presence in Dallas before the assassination, Well, there was not much the Warren Commission could do with that, purely hypothetical after-the-fact assertion. But nevertheless, FBI agent Dean Ray prepared and submitted a report for the commission, reporting just that. And then Hoover would shoot off on the same day a memo of his own, citing that the court on September 24, 1963, had ordered a psychiatric evaluation of Nagel after his arrest at the bank. And that psychiatric evaluation request alone was the basis for Hoover stating that there was no need to pursue any of Nagel's allegations any further. Painting Nagel as mentally unstable and perhaps psychotic was already a narrative forming around him in order to silence anything he might have to say. Thank you for listening to episode 185 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.